Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your love. For you to stand by my side. I, like Adam, want things my way, want to walk in my kingdom. Even with a regenerated heart, still struggle with these things. Want to proclaim our own kingdom. As another song says, you've loved our heart to death. The death of your son, Jesus. The death of our old self. You made us new creations. And while we do our work of proclaiming your kingdom, you do your work of making your kingdom a reality in us. Father, thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 6. A couple quick introductory matters here. Of course, we typically, again, uh, if just real quick, if you're a visitor, I, I want to explain. Typically, we uh, work expositorily through books of the Bible. It means we work verse by verse. The series has been substantially different. We're really doing what's called the fancy term for it. It's biblical theology. It's the study of themes and typography and, and such, uh, typology rather, not typography, ty typology in the Bible. Uh, and the theme that we are studying here is the theme of the kingdom, which we're defining as God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. Uh, so we're doing a biblical theology of the kingdom, which would be a, the technical description of what we've been doing for the past uh, number of weeks. So here we go. I want to, this week, just out of, uh, again, just trying to help understand how we work through the Bible and preaching and such kind of thing. I, I'm going to be primarily in Acts chapter 1, 6 through like 11 today, but uh, probably wouldn't be a true expository sermon of 6 through 11 like we typically would do. I'm going to, we're, again, trying to step up and go, okay, what is the whole Bible talking about when we think about the proclaimed kingdom uh, that we'll be looking at today? I mean, I'll define that for you in just a moment. Let's read. Let's read just verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He, being Jesus, said to them, it is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's stop right there. One thing as I was working through this sermon is that we're getting ready to go to the book of Acts. Uh, so I'm going to try not to steal too much from the book of Acts, but I, I believe in God's sovereignty this will help lay some groundwork as we 
think about the book of Acts coming in the month of September. But so far, just as a very quick means of, of review, we've talked about these different aspects of the kingdom, how the kingdom of God, again, God's people, God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing, how that has unfolded since Genesis. What it looked like in Genesis and then the different kind of uh, cycles of that, maybe not cycles, but kind of different uh, phases of the kingdom as it's unfolded in Scripture. So I want to give you maybe some key words that as you think about this aspect of the kingdom, uh, you will think about this part of the Bible. Okay, so very quickly, the pattern of the kingdom. Let me think about the garden. The pattern of the kingdom, think about the garden. The pattern is established in the garden pre-fall. Then you have the perished kingdom. You need to think about the fall. Adam and Eve are perished from the kingdom as God had originally designed it. Then you have the promised kingdom. It really comes with Abraham, Genesis 12 and such, where God is saying, I'm going to do something. I'm going to restore my kingdom, and I'm going to do it through you, Abraham, and through your offspring. Then you have the partial kingdom, which comes after these times, but, in, but kind of around Moses, but particularly think like Dav- Davidic kingdom, the, the kingdom of David. Think about that time period of the scriptures. Whereas the kingdom is kind of partially fulfilled. Like you partially have God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. There, but it's not perfect yet, right? There's, there's still going to, like God's king, it's not Jesus. It's a, again, thinking about biblical theology, it's a type of Jesus. David is a type of Christ. He's not the Christ, but he's a, a type. He is pre, like foreshadowing Christ. So the kingdom is partially fulfilled, but it's not the king, Jesus. Then you have the prophesied kingdom, where you have, think, and this time think minor and major prophets, that they're talking about this kingdom that is to come, this future reality. The Davidic kingdom is not quite that, but there's something else coming. It's foreshadowing something greater. Then as we learned last week, we have the present kingdom, meaning Christ, that the king has come. And now, this week, we're going to talk about the proclaimed kingdom. The proclaimed kingdom. Thinking about the word proclamation. This is the time period where you and I live. In between the kingdom of God being present in His Son Jesus, the present kingdom. And the return of Christ to finish the new creation, which would be the perfect kingdom. That will be next week. We live in between those two kingdom phases, if you will, the proclaimed kingdom. We live in between where Jesus comes and the kingdom is present and the time when Jesus will return and the kingdom will be perfected. We live now in between those two, the proclaimed kingdom. We live, if you will, in between the first and the second coming of Christ. Jesus himself says, The kingdom is here. And yet in another sense, we know that the kingdom is something to look forward to. The fancy words we use for that is like the already, not yet. The kingdom is already here, but in a sense, not yet. And the part that God's people get to play, the, the role that we have in between these two points, is to be His witnesses. His 
missionaries, his proclaimers, his ambassadors. These people, you and I, those who are looking forward to the coming time where Christ will reign physically and visibly, where sin will be no more, where pain will be no more, all the brokenness will be fixed, where God's glory will no longer be veiled by our fleshly sinfulness, where His presence will be everywhere. Like even in a different sense than right now. Everywhere. These people who anticipate this, anticipate that, another phrase would be the consummation. When when Jesus will come and consummate the marriage between him and his bride, and this will be finished. Those who anticipate, those anticipating the consummation, when Christ's relationship will be made complete, these people will be those who proclaim of this kingdom. If you want to write down something, write this down. Those truly anticipating the consummation will be about proclamation. Those truly anticipating the consummation will be about proclamation. Obviously the inverse of that is correct as well. You see, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom is something that comes natural for someone who is at the point of anticipation concerning the coming of King Jesus. I'm not going to dive into it from this aspect in the text, but you at the very least see this modeled in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. They are anticipating the coming of King Jesus, and what happens? They proclaim the coming of King Jesus. But wait, herein lies the tension. All of us in this room struggle proclaiming this kingdom. Now, we just went through gospel fluency. So I want to, like, when we think about, what do I mean by proclaim this kingdom? What what do I mean by that? That means more. I'm going to argue that a rightful understanding of the gospel and proclaiming the gospel in this kingdom is more than door-to-door evangelism, sharing the Roman road, the four spiritual laws, or whatever other tract you memorized growing up. It certainly includes that, but it's more than that. See, many of us struggle to proclaim the gospel to our own hearts every day. And if we struggle to do that, no wonder we struggle to proclaim the gospel to our neighbor. Or we struggle to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. No wonder we struggle to proclaim the gospel to our lost children. Or if we struggle to proclaim the gospel to ourselves, no wonder we struggle to proclaim the gospel to those in need in the body of Christ. Right? See, these people who are anticipated, who understand the consummation and the kingdom and what this means, who then anticipate, who are excited, who are anxious for it in a good way, are those who proclaim the gospel. They may not do it perfectly, but they certainly do it. Now I know, some of us in this room, we, we do proclaim the gospel and be encouraged and be strengthened. But understand, we all have room to grow in this area. 
but why aren't we anxious to talk about Christ? And I mean, and when I think, when I think talk about Christ, like, like really talk about Christ, not just, let me define for you, not just Christian generalities, right? Let me give you a couple examples. Oh, well, praise God, we have a, we are good weather, and He's good today, and well, just praise God, right? Or, well, we'll be praying for you. You know, God is in control. Listen, that's true. That's true. But that's easy to do. Every Christian I know talks like that. And yet still somehow fails to proclaim the gospel. What I mean is, when you think about talking the gospel, again, going back, thinking about gospel fluency, if you haven't, if you haven't read that book or Listen to our classes. Let me know. We'll, we'll hook you up. What I mean is actually moving toward your neighbor and asking them, why are you struggling for hope right now? Why? Asking them good questions and saying, you know, Christ is my only I mean, when you see a church member pursuing fulfillment in their job or their children, that you stop, that you pray for them, then you move toward them both physically and spiritually, and you ask them good questions, and you begin to proclaim to them that you know Jesus is the better. Jesus is the better. You won't find it there. Why aren't we anxious to proclaim the kingdom of God? The period of the kingdom, the phase of the kingdom that we live in. I think there's multiple answers to that question. But we have to ask it. We need to ask that question every day. Am I anxious to proclaim the kingdom of God today? But maybe, even at the heart of it, if not right at the heart of it, is our blindness to God's plans and God's doings right now. Like, what is He doing? What's His plan for right now? And if the Spirit is alive in us, the Spirit will move toward God's plans, God's doings. That's what He does. He doesn't do anything else. So if we do anything else, then we are not walking in the Spirit. We're walking in the flesh. I think also we've become so content with this world, with our little kingdoms. We've talked about this in the past. But there is a bigger kingdom, a grander kingdom that is here and now. And yet, we still, even on top of all that, await something beyond our imagination and comprehension. Again, you see, those who anticipate this coming kingdom, this consummation, can't help but be about proclamation. For to understand God, the first thing I want us to see this, for to understand His heart and His doings in this kingdom phase, we need to understand that God is delaying the new creation for the purpose of proclamation. Did you hear me? God is delaying, purposefully delaying the new creation or the consummation for the purpose of proclamation. 
God is delaying, hear me, the return of His Son so that the gospel can be proclaimed. So we need to start asking the question right now. Like, if that's why God's delaying, why am I not about it? All the time. We need to understand that this delaying, this is God's plan. It's God's heart. It's what He desires. It's His plan from all, from the beginning, from, from all of eternity. This has always been His plan. But here's what happens. We tend to live as though all the work has been done and we're just sitting around waiting on Jesus to come. Let me me give you a a, a thought here. Did you know that Jesus, now this is getting a little bit of my personal eschatological views or my view of the end times. But, but I don't think this one is as debatable as the other millennium views and tribulation, you know, that kind of stuff. Jesus will return once the gospel has been proclaimed to all the nations and subsequently all God's people are gathered. Let me say that again. That Jesus will return once the gospel has been proclaimed to all the nations And subsequently, all God's people are gathered. I don't believe that Christ is going to return until every people group has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know there's debate around that. That's, I I think, we'll at least look at some of that support for that in just a second. So just hang with me there for for a second, that thought, that Jesus Christ will not return until the gospel has been proclaimed to all people groups on the earth. Did you know, let me, let me maybe open some of your eyes for the first time, that there are over 3,000, last known estimate that, that I could find, the best one that I could find, there are over 3,000 unengaged people groups left on earth. Three. You understand, like the top 50 of these have over 10 million people in each people group. That's three, listen listen to me, 3,000 people, meaning, this is what I mean by unengaged, meaning they have little to no known gospel proclamation whatsoever. They die today, they will go spend an eternity in hell. And Jesus will not return until the gospel has gone to those people. That's the heart of God. That doesn't mean that all of them are going to get saved. Don't hear me say that. But the gospel witness is not even there. I mean, I, don't, I know we live such uh, sheltered lives. And all we pay attention to is Fox News and how politics are going and how safe our country is going to be. When there are countries in the world that don't even, haven't ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ever. God says, I am delaying until they have heard the gospel. Parents, do you understand, or maybe even hope, that maybe one of your children might be a part of God's plan to take the gospel to one of these last people groups? 
Hang, hang that thought with me for a second. So, so listen, those who think, well, so-and-so could be the Antichrist, maybe Jesus will be in our lifetime. Listen, not unless the gospel's been heard in these nations. It won't be. And there's 3,000 of them left. We have a long way to go. Back to Acts. Listen to the disciples. I think we sound so much like the disciples here. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Listen, their question reveals how little they understand of what Jesus taught them. They've still not grasped two key things. Later they'll get it, but they still haven't grasped two key things. One is that Jesus' concern is not limited to Israel. It's limited to all nations, all people groups. And two, they still don't realize that there must be a delay. That there still has to be time now for the gospel to go forth. Jesus says in 7 through 8, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What's he saying? You will go gather my people, you will go proclaim the good news about me and gather my people. Let me ask you a question, a bit of application for us. What do you spend a majority of your energy and time gathering people around? Basically, let me ask you this way. What are you a witness for the most? Is it your sporting event? Is it your favorite craft drink? Is it your latest diet or alternative healing scheme? Is it making sure those around you don't stress you out? Is it the affirmation of your children or co-workers? Gathering people around these things? I'm not saying that these things are bad. I like sporting events. Diets can be helpful. Listen, we are to be witnesses of Jesus. Do you hear me? Jesus. Not foremost witnesses of democracy, a football team, essential oils, or even, hear me clearly, renovation church. We are not first and foremost witnesses of these things. We are witnesses to the ends of the earth of Jesus. That and that alone is our role description. Even when you witness about Renovation Church, it should be strictly about what Jesus has and is doing and will do in the future in this place. That is your witness description. That is your role. That is our job description. That's what we get to be a part of. 
That's what Jesus died for. Not for us to be witnesses of anything else. So now, the disciples have a job to do. Matthew 24, verse 14 says this, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Once the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed throughout the whole world, then the end will come. I want to make a statement that might be a bit controversial. So just hang with me for a second. The work was finished, finished at the cross. But we The work wasn't finished at the cross. But we live that way. Like it was just, it's done. And now I just kind of got to do this Jesus thing and, you know, make sure I follow the Ten Commandments and go to church and. The work wasn't finished. The work just began. Now certainly, hear me, the payment for our sin, the payment that makes all this possible, it was certainly finished. Done. Nothing left. Jesus says it is finished, right? That's what he means. The payment is done. The kingdom has been paid for. It's been bought But the redemption of all God's people, those people, the gathering of these people by means of proclamation, that is not finished yet. You see, God gathers His people for multiple purposes, but He gathers by the means of proclamation for the purpose of proclamation. Again, God is gathering a people by the means of proclamation for the purpose of proclamation. I don't have it on my notes, but the passage, how, the passage talks about how should they not hear if someone does not proclaim the good news, right? I mean, there's more to that verse than that. That we are the people of God. Those who've been bought by the blood of Christ are the people of God. We are those who see the present kingdom, right? Christ has come, but anticipate the perfect kingdom, the one to come. And therefore, live now proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. The entry into the kingdom. What it means to be a part of the kingdom. See, believing Israel and believing Gentiles are God's people. One people. A people granted grace and salvation. These people, this people, they are to be about the purpose of proclamation. They are saved, at the very least, for that purpose proclaiming what the good news of the gospel why because that is God's grand display of his own glory let me dive into a little bit of like the kingdom like our definition of the kingdom right God's people God's place God's God's people God's place God's rule subsequent blessing think about this with me the Lord Jesus the true temple has now ascended to heaven. Right? That's where we're at in the book of Acts. That's what's getting ready to happen. He's getting ready to ascend to the Father's right hand where He is to this day. But God continues to dwell in this fallen world. He dwells here. So I want to talk about this idea of Him dwelling here. 
What's this look like? There's two aspects to the to this dwelling of God in this place. And, and then we're going to get into the next main point. We're going to talk about like the Spirit's role. But right now we're just going to talk about the presence of God dwelling here in this place. Two aspects. One is this. We as individuals are temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body. Now, again, there's lots to that verse. But what I want you to understand is that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's the presence of God dwelling in us. That's how His presence is here. Let me ask you this question, though. What's the primary role of the Holy Spirit? You got to think biblical theology here, right? One is as you look over the the scriptures. What is the primary role of the Holy Spirit? I would argue, and I don't have time right now, but I would argue that it's to make much of Jesus. It's to make much of Christ, right? Who is what? Who is the image of the invisible God, right? So Jesus, he's to make much of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, glorifying ultimately the Father. So the primary role. That's what hang this, hang a hang a little. Uh, thing on the peg in your brain right here. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Jesus. Hang that right there. So if we as temples are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what do you think our lives will make much of? Jesus. Okay? Jesus. Part of the problem though, right, is we don't. Like we we make much of lots of other things. Oftentimes much of ourselves. Part of the problem is that we, many of us think we make much of Jesus when really, oftentimes, we're just making much of ourselves and we slap Jesus or tag Jesus onto it. Like we build our kingdoms, but make sure we say our prayers and everything must be peachy. It's good. When what we've been about, the motivation and the plan and the and the strategizing and all that stuff that we've been about is just to make ourselves feel better. Like, we can manipulate money this way. Well, we're just trying to be good stewards, but really I'm just doing it because it makes me feel comfortable. Because it makes me feel I'm in control. Or we want better kids. Uh, I'm, well, I'm just doing it because, you know, I want them to glorify God. Well, are you, for sure? Like, really? Like, this is what you're doing? May I mean... Yeah, think about this, right? Maybe, maybe I'm engaging my kids just because I want them to behave better so that my household feels better and it's more comfortable. Are we making much of Jesus? That's the question. If we think about proclaimers, proclaimers, meaning our lives make much of Jesus. And if we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it will make much of Jesus. We are the dwelling place of God. And if that's true, we will proclaim the gospel of God. Let me ask you this question. How do I know? How, maybe some test questions of how do I know if I'm making much of him and not myself? Let me ask you this. Is there humility and are you others focused? I think that's a good starting place. Is there humility? When I think of humility, I think of like making much of God, understanding your place before him. And then in that being others focused. 
serving others for nothing in return. doesn't mean you grit your teeth and serve them knowing you're not going to get anything. What I mean is like genuinely loving and serving, knowing I may or may not get anything back. It doesn't matter. Like that, that thought doesn't even cross your mind. You just do it. Like our call is to do that not just with our children, right? Like I, I'm going to love my child even though, you know, he may say he hates me. I'm still going to love him. I might, I might even get harm in return. That's our calling to everybody. We as individuals are temples of the Holy Spirit, and therefore if we're temples of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, we will make much of Jesus. I mean, that's a good test question. Look back over your past life, look over your life this past week and go, how much of each day was spent making much of Jesus? If I wasn't making much of Jesus, then I was probably walking in the flesh. I get it. Like, I, I, I can't caveat this thing to death. We'll be here all day. But, right, I mean, you're, you're plugging formulas on your computer at work and, uh, or you're, you know, you're changing a poopy diaper with a kid at home, right? I mean, like, how do I do that and make much of Jesus? I mean, I don't know. Seeing Jesus paid it all while you're, you know, typing in a number or you're swabbing the poop or you're spraying them down with a hose, right? Because they went in their pants. They weren't supposed to. Listen, much of that would be fixed if you'd go into it with the heart in the right place, right? And then now out of the overflow of your heart, you're, Punching in those numbers or wiping that butt. And I get it. You, you can't sing hymns, maybe. I mean, I can't do that while I'm punching in technical things in the computer. So two aspects. The first one is individuals are temples of the Holy Spirit, but then also God lives within us as a Christian community. God lives within us as a Christian community. Again, these are the two aspects of God's presence here. Ephesians 2, 20 through 21. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Did you see that? The whole structure being joined together. See that? Listen, you and I are incapable of doing this apart from healthy, explicit church commitment. This is God's role, God's plan. It's what God does. I understand God moves people around, and, but what are, what's our trajectory? What are we moving towards? And We're incapable of this. The idea of doing life on our own just isn't even a part of God's kingdom plan. It's just not how He does it. Like if, that's, if you see someone living that way, because I know none of us in this room ever would, if you see someone living that way, they're just not living a part of God's plan. It's just as simple as that. This is God, built on the foundation of the songs over Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What's he talking? He's talking about certainly the, the universal church, but there's a local church aspect to this. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. To these, this group of people. All right, we should continue. Let me give you this big thought, this Next thought, before we moved into the Spirit, 
aspect of the proclaimed kingdom is this, that the unity in the local church is of primary importance in the proclaimed kingdom. Unity in the local church is of primary importance in the proclaimed kingdom. Unity in the church, the local church particularly, is of primary importance in the proclaimed kingdom. Notice it said local church, because to say unity in the universal church, well, yeah, you, you can't disrupt that unity. Like that's, God's got that, and certainly, he certainly does in the local church as well, but to say it's just in the universal, well, what does that even mean? Like, and for Paul to say strive for unity, you, Christians, strive for unity in the universal church. Okay, Paul, what does that mean? What's Paul talking about? Striving for unity in the local church, like the local expressions of the universal church. Okay, track with me there. Here's what I want you, it is a prime, let me, let me define my phrase a little bit further here. It is a primary means of our nonverbal and even sometimes our verbal proclamation, the unity of the church is. It is a primary means of our nonverbal and even sometimes our verbal proclamation. It is that crucial, that important. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. This should be very familiar for most of us. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay? That's, what, that's the big calling phrase right there. Now he's going to describe that. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, the, in the bond of peace. So here, here's what I want you to pick up on. After Paul proclaims the gospel in chapters 1, 2, 3, now he says that you should walk now in a manner that is worthy of God's calling and what God's done in your life. And this manner of walking worthily is the unity of the body of Christ. That's the first place Paul goes. The first place Paul goes. He didn't say... Walk in unity with a particular friend or even your best friend. He didn't say, walk in unity with your classmates or your co-workers. He didn't say, walk in unity with your children. I'm not saying that having good relations in those places are bad. But what he does say is to the church in Ephesus, walk in unity. With your brothers and sisters there, walk in unity. Listen, when people from all different places in life, all different sorts of struggles, different ethnicities and nationalities come together and with patience and gentleness, love and care for each other, when they come together and there is unity, what is that displaying? That's such a fundamental display of the gospel. It indeed is showing our proclamation of the kingdom to the world. The summing of all things. The uniting of all things in Christ. Our unity as a local church proclaims that. Like that's what God's doing. Again, not, not that we shouldn't have friendships and such with the people that aren't a part of, not what I'm saying, don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is that the unity of this body has a unique opportunity to proclaim the kingdom of God as a people. 
Like what Gloria Furman says in her book on Ephesians. It says, Paul is not merely laying out a plan for Christ followers to have nice friendships with each other. The new humanity is in you. He is describing the way, the one way to walk that is worthy of our calling as a new creation in Christ. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another all typify the way new creations walk. Walking in accordance with the gospel is the new humanity's expression of authenticity. This walk is for real. When our brother or sister in Christ offends us, our elder brother, Jesus, enjoins us to move toward them and not away from them. When our brother or sister in Christ is socially aloof from us, the Spirit orients our hearts to be eager for unity with Him and eager for unity with her. End quote. Listen, unity in the body is crucial to the proclaimed kingdom of God. We need to fight for unity and crush with the gospel anything in our own hearts or in the hearts of others that would prohibit unity. Let me, ask, let, me, let, me, let me draw out another application here. Maybe you don't feel like there's tension between you and someone else or, or whatever, but you see it. You see it. Like you see it between other people. If unity is that important, what are you doing about seeking the unity around you, even though it may not directly involve you? What do you do? What role are you playing? Are you conscious of this and making steps towards it? Let me give you another implication. I think there is a correlation between our vigor for unity and our vigor for proclaiming the gospel. The vigor of your fight for unity reveals your desire for pro proclamation. I think if you look closely, you'll see a correlation. If Unity in the body is so crucial to the proclamation of the gospel. Then our care for one will impact the other. There will be a correlation between the two. I, I, I don't have time to linger there. Let's move on, but give that some thought this week. Uni listen, unity of the body of Christ is not just important. It's, it's at the top, or at least near the top. It's the way we say with our actions that God is unifying all things in Christ because He paid for it all with His blood. Again, go back. You could read earlier in Ephesians to see where this idea of summing things and unifying things. That's why Paul would go to this first, I believe, particularly in the book of Ephesians. All right, deep breath. I get it. This is all hard, okay? Matt's been preaching pretty hard. It is indeed. I, I think what we're talking about here, this unity in the body, this proclaiming the gospel, forsaking our kingdoms, all, I, I get it, this is hard, but it's not hard for the Spirit. It's hard for the flesh. It's not hard for the Spirit. That's His job. It's easy for Him. 
That's the Spirit's job. Why don't we move with confidence expecting Him to do this? Repent of our selfishness, our kingdoms, our things, and pave the way for the Spirit to have His way. Listen, God has sent the Spirit to empower proclamation. And we're going to get to spend a lot of time in the book of Acts and see what this looks like. But God has sent the Spirit to empower proclamation. Again, what is the purpose? To to proclaim the good news about Jesus. Jesus says that I'm going to go, the Spirit's going to come. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus didn't say that, I said that, so wait a second. Let's go back up here to the top, okay? To proclaim the good news of Jesus. The Holy Spirit now dwells within His people. We talked about this already. The problem is that we're simply oftentimes not walking in the Spirit, walking in the flesh. But let's talk about the role of the Spirit here for just a few moments. A few things we need to understand about the Holy Spirit during the proclaimed kingdom. The first one is this. It's the Holy Spirit who gives new birth. The Holy Spirit who gives new birth. I'm not talking about spirit baptism. It's a different thing. What's Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3, 3? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Go back and study that passage. Don't take my word for it. Maybe that's John. Is it John 3? John 9. Anyways, sorry. I think there's a mistake in my notes. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. What is he telling him to do? Right, he's telling Nicodemus to do something that he cannot do himself. Right? Should I crawl back into my mom's womb? Right? Jesus is telling him to do something he can't do. We are by nature rebels and would never repent on our own and put our trust in Christ. Ephesians 2, I mean, there's plenty of other. Just read the whole Bible. A miracle has to take place. Like the Spirit has to do something to awaken our hearts. The Holy Spirit, of course, performs this miracle. John 16, verse 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, listen, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning the righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Here's the main thing I want you to see from there, is that it's the Spirit who convicts us of our sin and then points us to Jesus as the one who can deal with it. Listen, as the word is proclaimed, and as the Spirit works to call people to Christ, the Spirit gives new birth. Second, the Holy Spirit equips us to minister to each other very quickly here. Spiritual gifts for the benefit of building up the body of Christ certainly is the role of the Holy Spirit during the proclaimed kingdom. a good application if you're considering a church home a place to call your church home ask this question is this the place that the spirit can use me to serve what I don't mean is do they do things the way I like it so that I can be a part of it what I mean is, is can I give myself to what God is doing here in these people 
can I, can I be used of the Spirit in that? If that's his role during this kingdom, that's a, at least one of the questions we should be asking. Third, the Holy Spirit equips us to proclaim. Imagine that. The Holy Spirit equips us to proclaim. Acts 1.8, the first part of the verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So you'll receive power. Did you hear that? You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Listen, I think many of the times why we go day in and day out not feeling like we have any power is because what we're about is not His witnesses. Man, I'm just worn out today. Okay, well, maybe that's just because you worked hard and good for you, but it could also be that you've been working hard about the wrong thing. Like, how about your spirit, your soul? Is it at rest? Has it been empowered by the Spirit today? Because you've been about His witnessing. God sends His Spirit to empower us. That's His job. The Spirit is God's presence in us. And so where we go, the Spirit has no choice but to make much of Jesus where we go. Even if that is looking down at a child on a changing table with a really nasty one. I get a chance to make much of Jesus right now. So how do you know if you're walking in the Spirit? Again, are you making much of Christ? You're a witness of His mighty work, not just His work 2,000 years ago, but the effect of His work today. You're a witness of His work. Listen, we cannot claim to be filled with the Spirit as individuals or even as a church if we are not active in proclaiming the gospel. Let me say that again. You and I cannot proclaim. We cannot claim to be filled with the Spirit if we are not about proclaiming the gospel because the Spirit proclaims the gospel. Period. That's His job. But those who are filled with the Spirit live in such anticipation of the consummation that they will be about proclamation. Listen, our King died to set us free, rose to the right hand of God, and is coming to make all things new. To finish, if you will, the effects of His payment. He'll complete it, and He's in the process of doing that now. What does this lead to? It leads to mouths that are vocal. It leads to lives that are demonstration. To remind you a little bit of gospel fluence, I like how Vanderstelt said this, that that spirit-enabled stuff, spirit-enabled actions and words will require a gospel explanation. So does, does our lives in front of our neighbors, in front of our co-workers, in front of our whoever, does it require a gospel explanation? Listen, you and I were helpless. Then God rescued us. We should be the most grateful people with the best story to tell. At least that you and I believe it's the best story. They may not believe it, but we know we have the best story to tell. We hated God. But God set His heart on rescuing us. He sent His Son to live rightly for us and pay sufficiently for our rebellion. Then God sends the Holy Spirit 
to give us a new heart that would never have chosen God, but now does. And having repented and now believing in the work of Jesus, we have been made new, set aside, being called to holiness and blamelessness, being made ready for the coming of our King, where we will live in His presence of unending joy for all of eternity. That's a story. That's a story. It's almost like someone wrote a book about it, and it's more popular than any other book in the world. Let me end with this. During this proclaimed kingdom, our, this age is going to be both joyful and frustrating. It's going to be both joyful and frustrating. I'm going to give you, lastly here, just a few implications of the proclaimed kingdom. The idea that it's kind of already, but not yet. Some implications. It'll be both joyful and frustrating. Here we go. First one is don't expect your church to satisfy all your needs. Don't expect your church to satisfy all your needs. I'm saying this for all of us. Most people will say and we realize that there's not, nothing's going to be perfect. Understand that your satisfaction comes from the groom in this marriage, not from the bride. Certainly God, certainly Christ, as He, as the Spirit comes and empowers the body, like the body is meant for our good and meant to lead us to Christ and for us to experience the fullness of Christ even. I preached a sermon on that back in Ephesians. Like that's how we begin to experience the fullness of Christ is through the body of Christ, certainly. But Jesus alone is the only one that can satisfy you. Second. Don't expect your relationships to be perfect either, to satisfy all your needs. Marriage relationships or otherwise, relationships with kids, relationships with... Listen, let me, let me give you, here's, here's where I get the implication from. If you need the power of the Spirit to proclaim the gospel in these relationships, <laughs> then that probably means they're going to need some serious work. The gospel is going to be proclaimed, and you need the Spirit to do it. Listen, many of our marriages struggle because we believe that in our marriage, the kingdom has already come, or at least it's supposed to have. It's not. I don't know if you realize that yet. It's not. Just believe and know that as your marriage is redeemed, it is a tangible display of the new creation becoming a reality, and that will be here in its fullness someday. Live knowing that the unity of your other relationships is a tangible display of the new creation becoming a reality. Like, like within the church, as you see relationships being more unified and more real, it's a display of the new creation becoming a reality. Third, God has given us so much to proclaim. He has given us so much to proclaim. 1 Peter 1, 8-9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I could preach a whole sermon right there. I've got like a minute. Listen to me, church. 
Listen. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Man. Look to the outcome of your faith, the consummation. When our king returns, our savior comes back, our perfect priest says to us, come with me to my new city. Is that something joyful to live for? Is that something joyful to proclaim? The city where we will live in His presence forever. In the presence of God. Where the presence, the very presence of God is the salvation of our souls. Read on with me in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And what happens next in the book of Acts as time unfolds? They begin proclaiming the kingdom of God. You and I are here today because of this proclaimed kingdom. See, those who live in anticipation of the consummation We'll live a life of gospel proclamation. Let's pray. Gracious, kind, and merciful Father, choosing us weak, pathetic people to proclaim the glories of the God of the universe. No wonder we need your spirit. No wonder we need rescued from our flesh. To carry a while around the weight of something so marvelous. Father, may we lay aside the, the chains of sin that so entangle us that so rob us of our strength, that so rob us of our, our momentum and our ability to proclaim the glories of your kingdom. Father, you're the only one that could take a people like us, gather us as your people, give us new hearts, lead us and to redemption, read us into repentance and faith and make us your witnesses. Only you could do such a thing. Well, you've, you've done all this at a great cost. The life and death of your son Jesus. 
but you rose him from the grave. And he's seated at your right hand. And he has sent the Spirit. So we would be your witnesses. Thank you for giving us something to witness about. We love you. Jesus' son's name, amen.